creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. All right, welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we have a special guest with us who will be sharing a really important resource. Uh, many of you have been asking us about uh, specifically what will help you understand the Bible in its context, uh, generally while interpreting scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, our guest today is uh, the Reverend Dr. Tom Wright. And of course, you know, the, for the five people that haven't heard of uh, Dr. Wright, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you. It's, uh, he's currently research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College in St. Andrews in Scotland, and was recently appointed senior research fellow at Wycliffe College, or Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, not Wycliffe College. And he's the author, of course, of many books, including a personal favorite of mine, which I finally got to finish. I started in 2013, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Took me an entire seminary. It took, <laughs> it took me an entire seminary master's degree to be able to finally finish it, but I finally finished it, and I, was, I, was, I really loved it. And uh, today we're interviewing him about his most recent work, co- co-authored or edited with uh, Dr. Michael Bird, uh, the New Testament in its world: an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christian. So, welcome, Dr. Tom Wright, to the Split Frame Reference Podcast. We're so overjoyed to have you here. We're big fans. So. Yeah, we had Mike on before. <laughs> Oh, did you? Right. Okay. Well, this is good to be with you guys. Thanks for making the time to do this. Absolutely. All right. And uh, so uh, just a quick, uh, just kind of overview. How did you end up becoming a biblical scholar? It's not as if you, you know, wrote a thousand page book in a day and all that sort of stuff. You've had an amazing career and all that sort of stuff. So just bird's eye view. How did you end up being where you are today? I grew up in a church-going family, a very undemonstrative, typically English church-going family, but where we said our prayers and read our Bibles, and I sang in the choir at the local church, and I got to know the Psalms, and I loved them, and I got to know all the Jesus stories, and uh, I was just drawn in, both emotionally and intellectually and personally, into the whole Jesus movement, if you like, and, and though that has gone through various twists and turns, it's never left me, and from the age of about 12, Somebody told me I ought to be reading the Bible myself every day, and I started, and I've never seen any reason to stop, and uh, uh, that's just been the backbone of my life, really. Um, And then, so when I got the chance actually to study the classical world as an undergraduate, that excited me not least because that was the world that the Bible came out of, and then when I switched to theology, I realized as soon as I got into serious biblical studies, this is really what I wanted to be spending my life doing and trying to teach it and and to, to stir some things up with things that I and others were seeing, seeing that not all the scholars were seeing and so on. And so that's really what I've been trying to do ever since. Wonderful. So you just kind of, it sounds like you just continued on and that's still what drives you today. Uh, no, I, I, um, uh, I did my doctorate here at Oxford where I'm now living um, again. And uh, then I got various jobs, both in the academy and then in the church. And I've always found that a fruitful mix um, yeah. because uh, it's like studying music. Sooner or later, you actually want to get out on the stage and perform <laughs> it. And equally, if you're a performer, you may well find that it's a bit unsatisfactory. You need to go back and study the scores again and, and look and see what Beethoven was really trying to do. And so I've been bouncing to and fro between the church and the academy 
and writing and, and speaking and so on, the, the things which seem to be the necessary next things to do. And uh, uh, that doesn't look like slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, and I think these things get too siloed off now, um, just this divide between the academy and the church. I was talking with uh, one of my professors at Fuller, and he mentioned that war- that uh, that scholarship for him. I think this was Donald Hagner, if I recall, and he said something along the lines of uh, schol- Christian scholarship is the ultimate expression of worship for him. And I feel like for a lot of people, uh, Christian scholarship is kind of more sectioned off from the life of the church. But being involved in the local church and all that sort of stuff kind of gives it a gives it a reason for for doing it. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, and uh, I think it's fair to say that for me. Um, often in a worship context, either in my private prayers or in uh, a public worship service, then I find all sorts of ideas coming bubbling up, which I want to go back and study and look things up. And the, the, the converse is also true, that sometimes I'll be deep in a Greek dictionary or in a commentary or something, and I will find something which just makes me want to pray, to praise, um, mm-hmm. to worship. So, so it mm-hmm. is a rich commerce between the two. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so the... New Testament um, introductions are, are common. Um, what makes the New Testament in its world specifically um, unique? And what does this one accomplish that others don't, uh, such as uh, Joel and McDonald's recent The World of the New Testament? Yeah, uh, it's hard to compare um, inch by inch with the other books that are out there. Yeah. I think what Mike Bird and I are aware of trying to do is to pull together three things which often in seminary courses require three different textbooks. Mm-hmm. Question of the world of the New Testament, um, you know, the, the, the Greco-Roman world, the Jewish world, the, the, the history and the culture of the time. Then there is a survey of the actual books. What are the books that make up the New Testament? How did they get written? What do they basically contain? And then there is the let's put it all together stuff, which is the theology, and hmm. then the theology with legs, if you like. Yeah. How does this translate into um, getting out there on the street and doing something about it? And we're trying to do all three at once. So yeah. The fact that this book is 900 pages, of course, quite a bit of that is pictures and charts and diagrams. Mm. And Mike Bird did all that stuff, and, oh, and nice. it's brilliant. I'm very happy with it. Um, but uh, uh, as well, it kind of replaces or is aiming to replace the three 300 page books that you might have had in the ordinary course anyway. And to mm. do it in, I hope, a creative style, there's quite a lot of flair to the way it's put together, if I can. If I dare say that, and, and yeah. I owe that again to Mike Bird, who, who did a lot of the initial setting up of the whole thing. Yeah, how did you guys decide the exact layout? I mean, this thing covers a lot. It covers um, criticism, biblical commentary, intertextuality, um, various um, contextual factors, both like social, like cultural. Like, there's a bunch of stuff in here, but it's not confusing or shallow. And it doesn't feel like kind of hop, like splatted together or anything. <laughs> it feels very synthetic. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I'm glad if it feels like that. I mean, the way we did it was we agreed that Mike was going to do the initial work <laughs> and that then he would pass it to me and I would go right through it. And that's, that's what we did. Hmm. But Mike, in order to do that initial work, um, read right through my entire shelf full of, of books on the New Testament, um, which is a task in itself. Yeah. <laughs> and so it follows the logic and the shape, particularly hmm. of my book, New Testament of the People of God, which was 1992, so that's, what, 27 years ago now, um, which set up the history, the literature, the, the theology, 
uh, the other way around, literature, history, theology, um, but also set out the parameters for how you then come at the New Testament within the world of the Jews at the time, the world of the early Christians, all set within that larger Greco-Roman world. And then the questions just naturally fall out. So how does the text work? How did the canon form? Mm. Um, who was Paul? What was the impact of Jesus' resurrection? Um, and so Mike and I came and went a bit on some of the precise ordering and so on, and I rewrote some sections and we did a lot of emailing to and fro, which was great. It was one of the, I have to say, one of the easiest collaborations I've ever had, and I've had a few. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting um, just how much is, is there. <laughs> Nick, uh, I think you had some questions as well. Yeah, this, it's, uh, it, it covers quite a lot as well. Uh, and I've noticed with a lot of New Testament introductions, you know, I, I, at least when I started seminar, I went through about 12 of them because I was just so curious to see what everyone's saying, you know, from Guthrie to David De Silva and, through, you know, just kind of the whole course of them. And a lot of them either kind of adopt the bird's eye view where you kind of you get, you know, some of the, you know, the trees, but you don't get kind of the, the real debate or you don't get the interesting questions. And others are so specific that they read like a dictionary and you just put it down after five pages and you're just kind of done with it. And with this one, how were you able to kind of, I don't know, uh, without being superficial or, or yeah. diving into the weeds a little bit, because this book, I mean, I can pick it up and know instantly where you guys stand on certain issues like Pistis Christu or other kind of contested issues in New Testament theology, but you don't get bogged down in it. It's just, it's. I don't know how y'all did that, but can you explain like, kind of the process for maybe how you did that? Like, I think it was the magic of Mike Bird. Probably the magic of Mike Bird, too. Oh, but. There, is, there is a certain amount of Bird magic. Um, <laughs> but, but also, I think the fact was, we, we, were trying, we knew we were trying to do uh, a, a lot of things, um, but we wanted to keep it under a thousand pages. So we yeah. had to be crisp and clear. It's like, you know, if somebody... I've just been asked to write a, an article for a magazine, and I've got maybe 800 to 1,000 words. And uh, the, the, the topic they've asked me to write on, I could quite easily write 10,000 words. But if you're going to write 1,000 words, then you have to say, okay, we don't have much time here, so we've got to cut to the chase and say it's this, it's this, it's that, and we're done. And so we were operating on that principle all through. And, I mean, one of the bits that I rewrote is an example of this, that um, Mike had pulled together from some of my previous stuff uh, a, a whole section on Romans, what, what Romans is all about. And I read it and I thought, well, I recognize that. I see where Mike has got this from and it is my stuff, but I actually don't like the feel of it now. <laughs> Maybe I've gone um, and, and so on. So I just said to Mike, do you know, I'm going to rewrite that section on Romans. But if I sit down to write a section on Romans, that could go on all night. I mean, like all year. <laughs> so I just had to do it that day and be done with it. And so it concentrates <laughs> the mind wonderfully you having to do that yeah so when and just this is a side question i just realized it when when you and mike say fundamentally came to like a disagreement on a, on an interpretive issue how was that settled so did you, oh, you know, break break a bottle and just basically jump in the ring or did you you know you know rock paper scissors how did how did that process work because i'm always curious when authors kind of have to interact with that rock paper lizard spot the, the, the most surprising um uh, disagreement we had initially was on the question of Galatians, on mm. whether it's north or south, and whether it's early or late. Okay. And I had assumed that because I know Mike's a very sensible chap, that he would take the right view of this. <laughs> and he was, wanting to, he was wanting to waver on it. And I said, you know, I'm in print um, again and again on this. If I mean, part of the problem with writing a shared book is that people are going to hopefully quote this book um, and describe it to one or both of us. Yeah. So I, I'm expecting to see sentences which say, as N.T. Wright says, hmm. and then if there's a line that I really wouldn't say, this is 
difficult. Um, and, and I didn't want to waver on that and say, well, some say this, some say that, we don't really know, because I think we do actually know. So, so Mike and I went to and fro on the email, and I think this was at the stage when we both were, we've been working on it for years, we just want to get it done. And I think Mike said, no, sure, I'm very happy to go with that, you, you, know, you take the lead, that's, that's not a problem. So I, th I think he basically gave in, he, he's a nice guy. <laughs> um, but, but there were other things where, um, as I look at it now, maybe I could have pushed him harder or maybe he should have pushed a point different but that's always going to be the always going to be the case yeah. um so I, I but i think you know we have both learned a lot from very similar lines of thought over the years and so it's no surprise really that we come out quite close on on most major issues yeah so something else we noticed um there's a lack of preoccupation with um one second <laughs> no, no, that was just that, that was just telling me to uh, make sure I we were up to interview you. So my alarm went off. Thank you, alarm. A little late. I'm I'm the alarm keeper, so <laughs> I got him up in the morning. <laughs> we, it, uh, we woke up around I think six or yeah, about so. six. Yeah, yeah. We're on a different time schedule, but so what time did you guys know? Uh, we're seven fifteen right now. Okay. A.M. It's yeah. three fifteen in the afternoon here. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, okay, yeah, so Nick and I noticed that there's a lack of preoccupation with male-only leadership in this book, um, and especially the case with the pastoral epistles, and I think that issue oftentimes eclipses the message of First Timothy in itself. Um, how, yeah, how would you say that the topic of gender overall is treated in this book? Um, I think Mike and I are both quite relaxed about this. I mean, we are yeah. both Anglican clergy, and we, we both have worked for a long time in an environment where um, leadership is male and female. Um, we now, in the Church of England, have several female bishops, including the Bishop of London, who is the next senior after Canterbury and York. Um, Michael, I know, is very relaxed about this. I have written about the passage in First Timothy, as I've written about the other passages in various places. And uh, it's a it's a puzzle to me in a way, not in other ways, but in some ways it's a puzzle to me that in America this is still such a hot topic. Yes. Mm. You might have thought that actually this should be a done deal a long time ago. And I know that the part of the problem is that uh, for many cautious conservatives, it's bundled up with a lot of other issues yes. that they want to stay firm on. And I have to say, let's unbundle those issues and look at them separately. And when we do that, then the case for female female shared leadership or female leadership in the New Testament is massive and I start as you probably know with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 hmm. you know that, that, that Jesus does not say to Mary Magdalene um, now listen Mary I've got something really important to say but I want you to go and get Peter and tell him to come back he's going to tell the rest of you um, uh, no Jesus says to Mary you go and tell that lot including Peter that I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This is the most important Christian announcement ever. Mm. This is the beginning of the gospel. Um, and if Jesus entrusts that to Mary, I have no problem with entrusting any level of Christian ministry to any woman who's appropriately, prayerfully qualified, etc. Same thing with Phoebe in um, Romans chapter 16. Um, we don't know this for sure, but it's highly likely that people in the ancient world who were entrusted with taking a letter to someone were also the person who would then read it out mm. and quite possibly explain it. So it's highly likely that the first person to do an exposition of Romans was a Christian businesswoman from Kekrei, the eastern port of Corinth. Mm. And so you're putting John and Paul together like that. I think, okay, game over. This, 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 
that John and Paul are perfectly happy with with women doing these incredibly yeah. important tasks. And of course, uh, I mean, uh, part of my problem is that I think the word complementarian is far too good a word to let those guys have it all to themselves. Yeah. And that I do think that was commandeered. Significant difference between men and women, and there is an overlap. But you only have to go to a newsagent and look at the men's magazines and the women's magazines. And it, if that distinction didn't mean something mm. for ordinary people, then those magazines would be out of business long since. And that's not a caricature; it's simply a fact yeah. of life. And, and I think vive la différence, and I think God gives to women particular gifts and gives to men particular gifts, and we need them all in the shared ministry of the church. Yeah, I was talking with John Goldingay, and he said something along the lines of, I think he said something, in the Anglican Church, uh, you can't have men only imaging the image of God, and you need basically, because men and women are different, you need both to image God correctly in the in ordination and, and the in Christian service. You know, God is fully uh, yeah. portrayed when you have male and female together serving. So. Yeah, and I mean, the premise of feminism used to be um, that genders are different, and so you need both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I observed close up the divide being crossed between the modernist feminist agenda, which says men and women are identical to yes. both, and the postmodern feminist agenda, which says men and women are totally different, so we need both. And a lot of people who campaigned for women's ordination in the early days were modernists, and who were then horrified when the postmodernists came along and said, actually, women are totally different, and so we need women too. They said, no, oh, no, no, you've let the side down. And I'm with the postmodernists on this. I think not that women are totally different, but that women do bring distinctive gifts, and we should celebrate that. But that gift is not to stand in the background and make tea while the men do all the real stuff. Yeah, it happens to be all the subordinate positions are, yeah. are gifting. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the um, implications for how the New Testament depicts women for all of us, men and women? And basically, how should we min use this to minister in our churches, homes, and world? Um, I think what we need to do, especially in areas where this has become such a toxic topic, yeah. is we need to ramp it down. We need to say, look, there are huge issues out there. There are issues of poverty. There are issues of violence. There are issues of, of climate change, etc. These are massive. And let's just link arms and lighten up about, oh, dear, I'm a man, so I have to think like this, or, oh, dear, I'm a woman, so yeah. I have to think like that. Yes, of course, there are issues there, actually, in many different directions, not just um, a, a kind of A and B. Um, but uh, if we if we go back around those, it's rather like if you've got a sore tooth and your tongue keeps coming back to it, and you're sort of always thinking, oh dear, that tooth's a bit sore, um, <laughs> then your tongue isn't doing all the other things it ought to be doing in your mouth. And I think that in some parts of culture, particularly some bits of American Christian subculture, this has just become the issue that everything else collapses back yeah. towards. When I was in America just recently doing the, uh, uh, the book tour around this book, again and again, people were asking me these questions and it's like it's like a cultural obsession yes and i know why because you do have some people out there naming no names yeah. who, who say that the, that the women should just go home and, and uh, you know clear out of the picture um and i just want to say well okay they are writing themselves off the map of new testament christianity now please can we talk about something else um because yeah we, we, we in the church of england settled this one in 1992 which is quite a long time ago <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, our, our denomination or the denomination uh, uh, we're part of, American ba- American Baptist, is uh, basically we've had women clergy since what 1920s or something like that. I mean, Baptist, you kind of have a little more, you know, flexibility with that, given the emphasis on the local church and stuff. But as a denomination, we've always we've affirmed women at least on paper. Uh, right. You know, as far as that, so it's one of those questions I, I kind of look at as our denomination and the Church of England, other denominations, where it's like it's not that it was settled, but we came to terms with Paul very quickly because we understood what Paul was saying two thousand years ago, and it has implications for how we live today. Yeah, I think I yeah I learned about the preoccupation when I left the church and went to study um, in you know seminary and school. Um, in the U.S., so yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, they're very concerned at Westminster when you're there for a semester if you oh are going gosh. to be a, a pastor's wife or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with being a pastor's wife. I'm not making anything And wrong. I am now. You are now, but. <laughs> <laughs> it happened, that's, actually. That's a, noble, that's a noble vocation as well. Yeah. Um, though it's, it's, a, it's a difficult vocation. Um, we were at a dinner um, some years ago where... <laughs> We all had to go around about 40 of us in the room and say one sentence about ourselves. And when it came to my wife's turn, she said, I'm Maggie Wright. I'm a recovering bishop's wife. Oh. There was um, slightly nervous laughter. And I think people knew exactly what you meant. Nice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's okay. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'll, right. I'll keep him around for a bit. <laughs> all right. So that was all the questions we had. Uh, I, this has been a wonderful experience. We want to really thank you for taking the time. And uh, and this, this book is just an absolute gift to the church. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it and what the church will do with it. Yeah. Like, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about this book? Um, just like what, what would be? Yeah. One of the things that I would say, which I mean, anyone seeing a book, this heavy, physically heavy, yeah. will say, oh my goodness, will I ever get through that? And in a sense, that's not the point. This book is for anyone, whether in seminary or in an ordinary church, who says to themselves, you know, I've been trying to read the New Testament on and off for a little while now, and I quite sort of get some of it, but I have a sense that there's much more, I'm probably missing out on it, and where do I start, and how can I just dig my way a little bit further into it, and won't that be a bit scary and challenging? And the answer is, no, it won't be scary, it will challenge you from time to time, but here is a book, a resource, which will enable you to get straight in and to enjoy doing so. And as I said before, all the charts and pictures and diagrams and datelines and so on, and Mike Bird is responsible for all that blessing, um, they make the going easy. They kind of ease the way along, um, like like having a, a nice refreshing drink while you're chewing your way through a steak. You know, it's sort of um, yeah, we can we can cope with this, and it's in bite-sized chunks yeah. to continue the the, the the dining table metaphor. Um, and and I think people will generally find it much more accessible than the average 900 page book. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. Great. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay. Well, it's good talking to you guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. And you've been this has been wonderful. So thank you very much. Yeah. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I hope our paths will cross one of these days in, in, in real space and time. Absolutely. For sure. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye.